0: Welcome to Bold Becoming, Identity Retooled. This podcast is where we explore the landscape of the immensity of landmines that exist for people who've lost their sense of identity, who've been shaken to the core, and are relearning who they are now that a part of them is lost. It's stories of how people manage this struggle, regain their footing, and the gifts they've discovered along the way. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, Christina. Hello, Julie. Today, we have Christina Jones on Bold Becoming, and she's a super trooper bold becomer. She's had so many losses. I can't even begin to remember them all. And the one that I asked if she was willing to talk about today, and I'm going to cry just like introducing her, is she lost her son to suicide. And, you know, any kind of loss can actually creates new roles for us to fill because whatever role we were filling in that relationship where now the person is gone that role has is, is diff- gone or different or you know it has to change and so therefore I, our identity changes with every kind of every loss of a person in our lives who's close to us and in particular i'm really interested in hearing how losing your son to suicide has forced you into an identity transition and sort of like how that's been for you obviously it's been horrible um but just you know dig around a little bit just so that so we can hear your story because i think that
1: number 1 people don't like to ask about these kind of things mm-hmm. because they don't know, you know,
0: they they don't know what to say. I mean, it's like, what really can you say to help the person? And And number two, people just in general don't like to think and hear about like really tough stories, but that's, (laughs) that is my podcast. Mm -hmm. I love to hear about people's tough stories. I wish that they didn't exist. And since they do, what I do know is that if it's done in a good way, it is important to talk about them for the person and for other people to hear about them. So thank you for being so courageous to show up for this podcast, Christina.
2: Oh, you're welcome. And that's one of the reasons I do want to talk about it. Um, I think in my upbringing and in my state, I grew up in Colorado and both my kids were born in the um, city that I grew up in. We always um, kind of put suicide on this back burner and didn't talk about it. And I've talked to other parents who often say that we're the bad parents or we're the scary parents once it's happened to us because it almost feels like others think we're going to be contagious. So recently, even I'd say the past 25 years or so, in our area, we've had a lot of young teens and um, even 11 and 12 year olds um, mm. dying by suicide. So I knew that um, after Ben died, I wasn't going to be silent about it. And it it's not that I think it takes a lot of courage. I think we just have to get to a place as a parent where we can talk about it without crying a lot
1: your and wound it, it has takes,
2: to heal yes it i mean
0: it's not that you ever are totally healed but it needs to at least get some some yeah. scar tissue over it
2: yes that's a good way to put it i mean it's super hard and um doctors um psychiatrists have told me that 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 pain from suicide because they chose to leave right is is a whole other layer of loss that other people don't understand so when we lose a parent or a grandparent it's a a step of aging typically so we can say they've had a good life and we've had years of time with them but when we lose a young person it's out of order right we mm-hmm. always hear that Um, you're not supposed to bury your child so it it hurts because it's it's not in the logical order of things Um, right
0: like my dad we just had my first there's not a million cousins but there's a few cousins and the first cousin of mine died and my dad is 95 and Mm -hmm. and I called and told him because I saw it on Facebook from my from the cousin's sibling and my dad doesn't usually things don't usually phase him he just sort of but that was a low blow Mm. that really I could just feel his brain trying to wrap
1: it around like wait a minute I'm supposed to go before my nephew goes yeah it's
0: hard. So it so it is. It's it's just a really um, it
2: feels backwards. Mm-hmm. Years ago, um, I well, I was in human development in college, so I mm-hmm. I thought I was prepared for just about anything, and I studied. I even studied um, adulthood and aging, and worked with families at the health department and in human services. So I thought I was pretty prepared for everything. And I, I even have taken those suicide prevention classes and was a first responder for people in a crisis. So I talked about things a lot more in my family and with my kids, I have two boys. And then I married a man with, who had two girls Um, this is our third marriage, and we both have experience with addiction and recovery in our families. So we thought we had a pretty healthy environment. But um, I guess when you think you have all the tools, what you don't realize is you may still not see all the signs when it's your own child. And that was what was so hard for me was understanding that um, when somebody really is sick and and not wanting to stay, they're going to make every effort to hide that from the person who's probably closest to them. And with my son Benjamin, I was that person. so his he wasn't as close to his father, who lives. Who lived about 60 miles away. But I was a single parent with him for a long time, and we were definitely the closest. But he also decided to join the Army at a young age. So he had another layer of trauma on top of the things that he kind of went through, you know, with me and a divorce and and all those things. So he was a veteran and what is should he go into the service he went in at 17 and a half oh, so God. I thought you're supposed to be 18 they recruit them as soon as they have any interest in high school and they promise them all these things that never come true so they promised him money and oh I think jobs that are You know, way out of their reach until two or three years down the line. But he was in a fight, actually, in a fight with his brother. He was wanting to live with his brother, and who was 10 years older than him. And his brother expected the same things from him that I did, which was you have to stay in school, you have to have a job, and you have to clean up in your house. So they couldn't live together well because Ben was still very young. So that was kind of the push to say, well, that summer before his senior year, he was gonna go to the recruiting office. Mm -hmm. So that was the guilt aspect for me was, I wish I hadn't signed that letter that said he could join early. But oh, he, So parental consent. Yes. Was. So he went to his father first to get a signature. And then he begged me to sign when we went and met with the recruiter. So I think that kind of started my. My fear and guilt a little bit, but he was a big, strong boy, he was taller than I was, he was always that kind of a kid who did things independently. Like he was the kid at daycare who potty trained himself. And his teacher called me up and said, "Um, you're going to have to get some big boy pants on the way home because your son doesn't want to wear a diaper anymore. (laughs) So he was that kid. He was just so great. And I thought for sure, I would show you a picture because he was a good kid and he wasn't he wasn't a troublemaker he was strong like kind of like me we were both um Sagittarians and the only time we would clash is when we both kind of wanted the same thing and we had to fight for who gets it first or whatever I'm trying to see a good picture that will show up here's a good one of Sunday dinner it's hard to see with my blurred background no I
0: I can see it is I mean, the people in the podcast audio
2: won't, but. Yeah, but he was such a good boy and um, he was just big. He was the one who, you know, taught himself how to ride his bike in one day. I mean, he just was independent and a go-getter. We would go hiking and fishing and he was just a, a boy's boy. And he loved army men, and I wouldn't let them have guns when they were little, but he would make guns out of sticks and rubber bands, so it didn't matter. It is a boy thing. I know, he was a boy. Yeah. Um, Yeah, he was, and he, you know, he was so good with people and humans and everywhere he went. He would help people. He loved animals. I was just talking to my friend who said, Remember how much he loved cats? He would rescue little kittens that they'd mm-hmm. find. They worked at KFC together, and they brought home little stray kittens that they would find. And so he was a good kid, but I'm telling you, when he got back from... But wait a minute. So
0: he and he yeah. wanted to go into the service mm-hmm. because he wanted, other than the things that they promised him, what was... What motivated him, again, to he go really,
2: and- He really just wanted to be independent, and his brother was, I don't know, I, I, I think they were just fighting with each other that month or whatever, and he wanted to live with his brother, and I let them do it for about a month, and it wasn't working out, and I think he just wanted independence. Okay. And he said, mom, I could be a pilot. I could be, he ended up being in the 82nd Airborne in the army and he was jumping out of airplanes. I mean, oh my gosh. This is in the Iraq war. What year was was this? It was Afghanistan. Oh, Afghanistan. Which was worse because he was in that first group that deployed for 18 months instead of 15 he got that extension at the very beginning. It was 2006. And it was hard. I mean, he was only 18 when he deployed. So imagine their brains aren't even fully formed yet. They're going through this horrible combat training. And I believe it's torture when they put them through BASIC. I would agree with that. Yeah, the things we found yeah. out since then. and when they have pain and the pains that he had, he had ingrown toenails and that swamp foot where their feet get infected. Oh, I know it's horrible. And he didn't tell me, he wouldn't tell me these things. I found this out later. So they give these kids Percocet for pain, okay? I don't know what that is. It's an opioid. Oh, addictive. So my son came back from three years in the Army. He want, they wanted him to have a recruiting position. And he was at stationed at Fort Bragg for the 82nd Airborne. He wanted they offered him a recruiting position because he actually got released on a medical um honorable discharge, and he called me and he said, Mom, I can't take a recruiting position. And I said, Why? And he said, Because I can't lie to other kids.
1: Good for him.
2: His heart was broken. He had a relationship that was horrible with a girl. I used to call him the boy of two wars because he'd also met a girl through my son's girlfriend when he was home on leave and they had a crazy relationship and so all he wanted to do was come home so he came home um, with some help from my parents who
0: but he was already discharged and he wanted to come home not going and take a recruiting job
2: because he served his three years got out got released, and he never would talk about what happened to him in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So he was actually home for five years afterwards. So he got like, out,
0: he was only about 21 by then, right? Yes. He was still like just barely an adult, but yeah. he'd been th- three years or something in, mm-hmm. in a hideous war.
2: Yeah, it was horrible. So he uh, struggled. He had really good, a good job with Best Buy. And then he got hired by the Best Buy mobile division. And he just climbed the ladder. He worked constantly. So we knew he was working to, to limit his time alone, like when you have PTSD he was diagnosed with PTSD and had a traumatic brain injury which i didn't know oh shoot oh they're no they're trained they're trained not to tell their mom anything bad so they're told to be tough and back then the slogan was an army of one so imagine that you're told don't complain and don't get help from anybody so hopefully the army has changed since then. But this, is, this was where my anger was directed. But, but boy, let's not go too much into it. But why would it change?
0: Because then the, the um, civilian population would actually know what's happening in wartime. And then we might not allow this stuff to keep happening.
2: Yeah, there's a but, big push right now for all of us to help. The veterans coming home, so you'll see that in the ads. And then we got the nine eight eight number to finally go through for a fast way to call for resources. So there is a change. Mm -hmm. Um, So 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 he
0: was so he was he was trained to not share the truth about his reality.
2: Yes, especially with his
0: mom or his parents. Mm-hmm. But just in general, also,
2: yeah, all soldiers were. When we think back to the Vietnam vets, they were never. They never talked about their experiences,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, and they're all traumatized. So, so here was my kid coming home, working his butt off, making a whole bunch of money, and he was never able to integrate back into a healthy lifestyle and. He was addicted to an opioid, so we didn't know how addicted until about four years later. And Wait, how was he, he continuing to get it?
0: Oh, they give him prescriptions. Well, they just, they continued. Yeah. So his foot stuff was taken care of. Yes. But they,
2: the VA continued to prescribe? Somehow, him? yes. I don't know. We don't. I'm not really sure how they continue it unless they come up with different ailments or go to different doctors. You know, I just don't know. Because okay, So so he had two other, well, he tried suicide another time and I couldn't he couldn't even get a hold of his therapist. So I mean, I don't I don't know all those details. But it was five years later, so he was 25 when he. And he
0: was still he was completed. still getting it through. Through some legal means, because yeah. I have a story in my book of a Vietnam vet that got addicted to heroin. Yeah. As a, he didn't know he was doing heroin; he thought he was just smoking a cigarette, and it felt really good. But he had PTSD. And it and helped with his PTSD and then, you know, you get addicted, not, doesn't take too much to get addicted. Yeah. And, um, but then when he came back home, then he had to get the heroin on his own because, you know, he wasn't. So in your son's case, he got addicted. Yeah. And then he continued to receive the opioid. Yeah. I'm sure. I mean, he, and all this time you didn't know that that he was? He didn't say
2: that either? Well, he avoided me a lot. You know, his brother, I think his brother knew, but didn't quite understand it all. And his brother, so my other loss is that his brother hasn't talked to me in four years. So I lost two kids. <laughs> because I didn't
0: know that.
2: Because his brother feels so much guilt and sorrow that I'm a trigger for him. And, you know, it's just, and now they've both, Ben's grandpa died 15 months before Ben died. So losing his grandpa was even hard on him. So Ben had been in a VA hospital and they got him clean and We thought he would do well when he came back from the hospital and he hooked right up with a girl on Craigslist and I'm sure she was getting drugs for him. So it's, I mean, it's just a convoluted story of you can't protect them from themselves sometimes, you know, and I don't know. I I always feel sad because I'm in a recovery program called Al-Anon for 20 years. My husband's been in recovery for 20 years this year.
0: Oh, good for him. So we
2: know recovery works, but you can't force somebody into recovery. So it's just, it's sad.
0: Addiction is very, very complex.
2: But... But that's the part that's step 12 is healing and sharing the message with other people. I mean, that is the healing part of it. And if we didn't talk about it and we didn't continue our journey of, you know, seeking things that heal us and going to meetings and listening and talking, we wouldn't be healthy.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So I've learned, I read books about grief, I went to support groups with other parents, I went to suicide support groups, and they are very difficult to go to because it's, it's like a knife in your back on top of grief. I mean, it's just so horrible. The shock and the guilt and the shame it was so helpful for me to be with those other people, those other parents. And I can't believe it's been nine years this year. like mm. I just can't believe it. It's been ten years since my father died and I was an only child and then it's been nine years since Ben died. but you know I'm a I am a different person when you I remember listening to you talk about identity in the oh in the very beginning of your podcast and I thought wow who was I back then like I don't remember
1: <laughs> well let's but... go
2: into it let's <laughs> let's let's get these
0: snapshots of of what that how that suicide changed you forced you into becoming a different Mm -hmm. person I mean not a hundred percent but no you know when one part of our identity is gone we we have to like adjust everything requires adjustment
2: well I think um what I what I truly believed was that I was a mother first and when we when we put so much energy into that part of us, it really felt like that was ripped away from me. And I also, at the same time, I had to become an instant caregiver to my mother. And she had horrible dementia. So she had Lewy body dementia, which is different from Alzheimer's. And I, when my father died, my immune system crashed. Mm -hmm. So here I was with, with my youngest son and his and my oldest son were all in shock because my dad got a stroke real suddenly. And he was in perfect health. He was 88, but he was in perfect health. He was at a meeting that day and saying hi to all his friends at the senior center drove home sat down at his computer and at about 7 p.m and then had a stroke and my mom found him down there Mm -hmm. and so it was like a shock to our system because this is our little family there's nobody else and um I got really sick and they were trying to keep me out of the hospital with pneumonia, and I found out I have an immune deficiency disease. So, so on top of that, I got super sick. That was in June, June and July. And then I learned I could tell by my son that he was not well. He was panicky. Your young, your younger son. Yes, ben. he was. He couldn't stay with us as long as my oldest, like he, he would get really sad and really nervous. And I knew something was wasn't right. So, um, you know, making it through all of that was really hard. And my mother, then I learned how bad my mother was Mm -hmm. because all of a sudden she lost the, you know, the rock of our family And they had a big house and she was not mentally well. So I feel like at that, that was a huge turning point for me where I was torn between being a mother and trying to care for these adult men who were just crumbling. They were Mm -hmm. so distraught. Like they were wanting me to keep my dad alive on a machine and his brain was dead i mean there was he was not there <laughs> he died in in 4 days and he had a living will thank god that said no machines
1: mm-hmm. if
2: my brain is gone i'm gone mm-hmm. so i was so torn at that point between being a mom to them and then trying to care for my mother that I remember just writing in my journal and you know trying to figure out what my priorities were and I was a wife to a wonderful man who was trying to pick up pieces and help me out so a year of that and, and you know managing the estate getting my mother safe so she could stay in her home um, having a caregiver come in for her, getting my health um, fixed, so I didn't get worse. And then Benjamin was just isolating more and more. you know not not wanting to go to work anymore. People were wondering what was wrong. He was getting really paranoid. Mm-hmm. And so that was June of twenty thirteen. And, then and, and he, he was living where he had an apartment by himself. Mm-hmm. So you're living
0: with your husband. Your mm-hmm. older son is living out somewhere and your other son is living out.
2: Yeah. Okay. My older son had a girlfriend with, who has kids and he was living with her. He was with my parents for a while, but then. He hooked up with a, a woman he used to work with who has five children. <laughs> so he had a big family. He was busy. So, um, yeah. so, yeah, it was crazy. So then in September of 2014 was when Ben, well, I guess it was about three months before that, Ben moved to Greeley all of a sudden.
0: Where's Greeley?
2: It's about... 40 minutes from here it's just another town in a cluster of okay our towns and and he he had already
0: been through and gotten
1: off the opioid by then right oh that's a good question no
2: i don't think so yeah okay maybe uh, maybe he had yes because that was january i bet january he went through that i think yeah. So yeah, you're right. So we thought it, he would get better, but no, he was isolating more and then he moved farther away. Oh boy. Yeah. So we knew it wasn't going well. And then he basically was saying goodbye to people. And I, I just didn't know it, you know, he was doing visits with people and planning it. Yeah, it was weird. So I just, and there's a lot of, when someone dies by suicide in your life that you're that close to, that first year really is just shock. You're just in shock. So there's a lot of that first year from September of 2014 on that I don't remember. Mm -hmm. You know, people did things and helped us. And um, what I did learn is, to quit pushing people away. That's what I've really learned because I was so, I was so used to being the caregiver for everybody Mm -hmm. that I was saying, no, no, don't let anyone come over. And that was the worst thing I could have done. So my message to women is please let people help you Mm -hmm. because they, all they want to do is come and hug you. They don't want to tell you what to do. They just want to be with you and support you. And then we look at other cultures when when a mom especially is grieving, you know, the women come together and stay with her for months at a time. And in America, we tend to push people away and not even mourn with them or not even allow them into our circle. You know, it just... That's the and, one thing I really learned. That. And so you were pushing them away because mm-hmm.
0: you didn't want, you didn't feel comfortable with them seeing your
2: sadness or yeah. they were saying the wrong things or. I think it was just seeing me that. That sad and that. Broken. Like I just. I worked in a big agency and every day people would ask me, how's Ben, how's Benjamin doing? And now he's dead. Like, I just couldn't imagine it. I was just, I remember thinking that they'll never ask me that again. Like, and then we had this big, I had to plan his whole memorial. And I just had that big one for my dad. and. I, it was at the senior center. He was so, he was so well-known. It was a, attended by over 500 people. Mm. And then I had to do it again for my son and I can barely remember it. I mean, it was, I don't even know how I made it through it. Like I can't even remember. It was that, just. That seems like it would be something that other people would do for you. Oh, it was, it was just un it's like a dream. You're just, you just go through these motions and you feel like it's your child. So you have to do the very, very best you can. There can't be any mistake. You know, it's like- it's Super high
0: expectations. Yes,
2: yes. The, the person that was most comforting to me was my um, funeral director because I would known him for 25 years. And he was just such a blessing, he and his wife. And they basically held me up for the the whole week or the whole day. I mean, it's just, I don't know. So after all that, I kept thinking, well, now I'm not even a mom. And my older son was, you know, there with me and my mom, but it it just felt like I'd lost those two cheerleaders in my life the two that I was really close to and my responsibilities had shifted right Right. so I think as women when we're looking for what's most important that kind of defines who we are or what our activities are or what as as in anybody
0: what our activities define a lot about who we are Mm
1: -hmm. We, we
0: are what we do and and not totally because our, our thoughts and our beliefs and our values and all that but we we live out those thoughts and beliefs and values through the activities that we choose to do or that we have to do you know to having supporting ourselves yeah and so so when you're not Your son is gone. There's absolutely nothing you can do to change anything, to mom him differently, you know, because retrospect always has such great ideas and such great clarity and it's useless.
2: Yeah, it was, it's the one thing you're supposed to do as a parent is to protect your child and you could,
1: you can't, I mean. (laughs) Of course,
2: I I can't not cry, but I have to find my Kleenex. But, I mean, that's always the the hardest thing to talk about is. What you know? What made it? What made it that he couldn't come to you, you know, the mother that gave birth to him. And I remember even with my mom talking to my mother, she'd never had a baby because I'm adopted oh so she couldn't she couldn't understand I mean we had other problems too not just because of this but you you just can't imagine that hole you know this is what what is the hole describe it to us this baby that you I waited for him for 10 years I hadn't had a baby and I thought I wanted one more baby. I was an only child and Ricky was my, Ricky, my oldest is Rick. I just didn't want an only child. I knew when I was an adult that I wanted two children. That was just my goal. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And I was 18 when I had my first baby and He changed my life. I mean, he was my identity. Like I just, he was my gift from God. Like I just adored him. And then his dad was my high school sweetheart. And his dad had real severe mental illness. Um,
1: And you'll cry at this part of the story. His dad took his life in 2019. I'm so sorry. And you know, that one caught me off guard too, because I knew him since we were 15. So
2: When we talk about mental illness and you know addiction, we're not doing enough. We're not. So now, my oldest son has a seventy five percent higher chance of dying by suicide because his
1: father and his brother have both died by suicide. And if I don't talk about it,
2: then I'm ignoring the risk and the the hope that I have that talking about it will change things. Mm -hmm. We even started a group here in my town um, about five years ago called Imagine Zero. And that was our hope that we had all these teenagers dying by suicide. And they really were one-time acts that could have been prevented. I mean, they were very immature kids. And it was an impulsive act. It wasn't, you know, a 25-year-old like my son who was dealing with so much trauma and pain. It was a, a quick, impulsive act. And we just knew that if we kept having um, conversations in schools, public schools, and with parents, that we could try to get the word out more. And so this group that I helped start is still really going strong. We have first responders with the police officers now that are advocates for kids going out. I mean, it's really working, but Ah, it's just, it's just so sad, like.
1: Too sad. It's just,
0: sad is just the understatement of the millennium.
2: Yeah. And when you think, you know, we used to think the suicide only affects the immediate family. Well, it doesn't. So now the statistics are that one suicide affects up to 35 people. Um, drastically affects their lives and changes them. And then it affects that whole community that that person's in. So it's not just one family, it's their friends, their coworkers, their um, all the grandparents and aunts and uncles and, you know, the whole, everyone who knew them. I mean, it, it does change you. And it changes you how? Well, for me, it made me stop caring about the little things that don't matter anymore. That's what I've heard the most from parents, too, is um, we've kind of lost patience with people complaining about the weather or spilling their coffee. <laughs> like, or, or traffic jams, yeah. which are just like predictable part of urban yeah. living. Yeah, I think one thing I noticed in our support groups is that we say, I love you a lot more often, and we tell people how much we care a lot more often, and boy, hugs, if you've never been a hug huggy person, um, when you go into a support group and you need a hug, it's there for you. Like, I've never had so many hugs in my life. And I absolutely feel lonely and sad if I don't get hugs. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're so important. One mom, one mom told me, oh, it was probably a couple years after Ben died. She said, she said, Christina, you, when you first came into the meeting, all you did was cry. And I said, of course, that's all I did. It was like two months after he died. And then A whole bunch of people came to my rescue and said, we all cried all the time. That was a safe place to cry. And so um, you always have support if you if you're with you know like-minded sufferers. I mean, we need each other. And I think that's what the kids need to realize too, is that if they feel isolated or if you notice that somebody is, I mean, that's the biggest sign in our society. Especially when they're on their phones and computers, isn't it? Oh my gosh, it makes me so sad. Like they need they need each other. So I think that that is that hole that hole of. Um, I'm a believer, so I know where Ben is because I've had a I had a dream about him the night he died, mm-hmm. uh, that he was okay. He told me he was okay, but still that hole that you know, he's just not here anymore. You can't hug him and talk to him anymore. And that 25 years wasn't long enough for his life. But the impact he made, I think, on me just lives on in my efforts to talk to other people. And that's that's my goal, is to share him, share my story, our story. Larry feeds people every week. You know, his mission is to share his daughter's story. I, I told you his daughter died too. So we, we both lost a 25 year old daughter or child. That's your husband. Yeah. And that's why we think God brought us together because we can share our story and we have a grandson and that's our hope for the future. I worried about Ben every single day. And then all of a sudden, I didn't have to worry about him anymore. And as much as that hurt, now I could focus my energy on healing and caring for my other son, even if he won't talk to me, or even if the children are going through troubles his wife's children. I mean, I can focus that love on them instead of worrying about Ben. So that's just what I've tried to do. And writing, and I want to do my podcast. My podcast is mostly just stories um, to my grandchild that I don't know. I have a grand, an adult grandchild that I've never met. So my podcast is a message to her. So
1: I think I'm just a different creative person.
2: I'm not that, I guess I'm not that mom that I thought I would be or the grandma that I thought I would be, maybe. Definitely not the traditional family story. Yeah. And that's hard. You have to give up those ideals and those those dreams that you had and when you see that happy family in the park or that you hear about all the holiday meals people have I mean it can hurt it can be sad but we're not all we're not all perfect and his suicide did not make me a bad mom (laughs) because I was a good
1: mom So in the, like, sort of the identity
0: loss way that I look at these kind of things, you lost, you lost your son, and you lost your identity as a mother, and the the future identity that you were hoping would come out of that relationship as a mother, mm-hmm. because now he's, you know, he's in our going to get married or have grandkids. Mm-hmm. And so all of those different that that future identity that you were you know that every parent hopes and expects will become true gets nipped in the bud. Yeah. And so so it, it you know you're not going to be that identity is not available to you at least through through him yeah. And so you're you sort of, what I'm hearing is you've rechanneled whatever role that would have been for you, you're rechanneling it in a role towards prevention of of other families having to go through what you went through and
2: what that's you're a, going through. That's a good way to put it. I hope that I hope that is what I'm doing and what I've felt more ready to do. Well you said you started this group, yeah, that was a good, a good thing when I was working, still working for the Department of or the um, Human Services Department and started these different different groups talking about suicide. I mean, that was just so important. and it's good to hear that they're still going and that they're they're I'm still on their newsletter lists. I'm not a, I'm not in an official capacity, but I'm still there. You know, I mean, it just it's good to know because we didn't talk about it. It was kind of, I can't believe it was 20, you know, 14 and 15, and we weren't addressing it in schools or in even in college classes. It was so strange. And we had the highest rate of suicide in the country, in Colorado. In the country? Mm -hmm. Colorado, especially for young men. Yeah, back then, I don't know what it is now, but back then we did, We we have so many transplants here that I think the, you know, when they, when they were moving here and their dreams weren't coming true, it was, it was hard. So yeah, it's it's an epidemic, it really is.
1: And so for you
2: to talk
0: about it, what does that do for you? And, and how does that intersect with your identity and who you are
2: at this point? I've thought a lot about this. And one thing I know about in my upbringing, um, my mother, had untreated mental illness her whole life mm-hmm. and i thought the way she behaved was normal so she died in 2020 right in the middle of the pandemic and she never got um covid thank goodness but i had 7 years with her to really think about you know what that meant for me and and her, and her anxiety, and um, she was anorexic, believe it mm-hmm. or not. And her anxiety was so out of control that her whole life was lived in fear. And I, I, you just wouldn't even imagine how much fear she had. And so I thought about all the people who, you know, we've lumped into categories, we blame the homeless for being homeless on mental illness or addiction, or we blame some of the gun violence on mental illness. But what we really need to do is look at mental wellness. Mental wellness is just as important as physical wellness.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So why aren't we treating it as a normal examination in our in our upbringing in our um well child checkups and you know everything that we do so i think that's what what i wish i would have had growing up i remember in high school early high school i think they sent me to a therapist and the ther- i guess because i was acting out or not agreeing with them or something i don't know. But i remember the therapist said, "Well, we need to get your your mom and dad in here to talk with us." And they refused. So but any
0: kid who needs therapy, it needs to be family therapy because yeah. it's the dynamics that's impacting the children.
2: Yep. So in their mind it was my problem, whatever right. the problem
0: you were the was. identified patient. Right. And yet you were in an ecosystem mm-hmm. being influenced and having to cope with and figure out how to manage living in the
2: family system mm-hmm. that you didn't have that much power over either as a kid. I know. So I think back to all that. And my mom, even when my dad died, my. Well, and that's why I went into human development and family studies. That was my, that was my college education because I knew how much I needed that and wanted to learn about it. Mm -hmm. And I remember the, the caregiver that I loved that I had for my mom and me. I mean, she helped me too. She said to my mother, she said, oh, we have these wonderful um, classes for widows and support groups at at the hospice center that you can go to. And my mom just took that flyer and threw it across the room and said, I don't need that. And so that was the difference between, you know, her generation and mine. And I said, well, I'm going to take the flyer because I can use the caregiver support stuff. So I took advantage of all that, all that stuff that was offered to us. And, you know, we... (laughs) If we're open to learning and to accepting any kind of help or um, it doesn't have to be therapy, but I love my therapy because I have someone to talk to and to work through things and depression. I'm, de- I'm depressed a lot of the time, but I don't have to stay there. You know, I have help. I have people I can talk to. I have um books that i read i have journaling i use art as my therapy now you know we have choices we can do things about our own situation that empower us and we can help others find that too like i just don't tell us how
0: you brought the art because isn't that a recent thing since we met you sort of started Mm -hmm. bringing art as a therapeutic Mm, modality for you
2: (laughs) well it is now that I want to do more with it so I was always an a hidden artist who who never could be as creative as I wanted to be but yes I used to paint all over my walls and um, do all sorts of things when I was young and I decided that um, I was just going to start painting when I didn't have to work anymore and boy, it has, it has been such a journey. So I, I created kind of a business name called Morning Heart Art with mourning as Mm M-O-U-R. And through grief. mm -hmm. And it has helped me so much. And I wanted to share that with other people. So I have a website.
0: Wait, wait, so hold on. You can say this later, but how did it help you?
2: You know, it just takes away the clutter in your in my mind. It actually mm. has, it's proven that art um, can calm our nerves and it focuses us on one thing. It stops our hyper-breathing and I was going to see if it's in this. I was going to share this book by Alan Wolfelt is a writer who lives up in Fort Collins. Oops. Let's see if it'll go. Well, why don't you read it out? Because okay, pretty much people are listening anyway. <laughs> well, it's called the PTSD Solution by Alan Wolfelt, W-O-L-F-E-L-T, PhD, and he is known for his companioning series on helping people get through grief. And he lives in Colorado, right up in our foothills. But he's helped so much with all sorts of grief workshops. And this book is all about PTSD and mourn using mourning as a treatment instead of as um, a, like the last part of your grief. Mourning is a good exercise for a human. He says, grief is itself a medicine and that's by William Cowper. And so I use mourning as a therapy. So if I'm painting something or writing something, it can be in tribute to somebody that I've lost or it can be a poem about how I'm feeling And those exercises actually keep me going. Does that make sense? Like it gives a purpose to my grief. If that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, sort of a container or a conduit.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Because you're it's not just a container, it's 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 a conduit because you're able to put into it and there's movement in creation.
2: Yeah, I like that word conduit. That's very good. And I think, well, I remember my oldest son telling me a couple of years ago that he just couldn't cry. He wanted to cry and he just couldn't cry. And I said, Tell me more about why. And he finally figured out that he wasn't doing anything to um, get in touch with those feelings.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So we talked about doing an activity that he could do in remembrance of his brother or his grandpa or his grandma. Um, That's why we have memorials. That's why we listen to certain music. So when I do those activities, I cry and it feels good to get it out. If we stuff, Alan talks about this in his books, if we just stuff all that stuff inside and never release it, it eats us up. And that's where the anger and the illness comes from. I mean, God made us or our creator made us to feel the grief. That's Mm -hmm. why we're human. My dad,
0: who's 95, and he taught high school biology. And so he's everything, you know, trying to figure out living organisms. He says that it is absolutely just so sad and misguided. He didn't use that word. But that half the human race doesn't use this natural biological, um, physiological, thing called crying it's repressed but it's there for a reason yes you know that's it. it's not like the human design is so wonderful and crying was part of our design because Mm -hmm. everything is like designed with a purpose but half humanity blocks that natural human release mechanism is really what it is it is and it's just just really like really really sad that because because we are we're made to so emotion
1: Mm
0: -hmm. emotions are made to be emoted that means to get out Mm -hmm. not to repress and stuff and act like they're not there and i just learned actually last night this guy that I interviewed, he told me about this really incredible movie that I just started watching. And it's about men. It's a documentary about men and it's called The Mask You Live In. And it's oh, ab-
2: I, I have heard of that.
0: Yeah, it's about repressing your
2: feelings. Well, it's, I mean, we've done that in our society more than ever to men. I don't know why. I'm so thankful. Things I did with my dad af- after he, oh, he was probably in his 70s. I started hugging and kissing him. And he would never say, I love you. And I did it because I was studying adulthood and aging. And we we kind of were doing experiments to see if we could get our parents to let go of some of that from the depression area they didn't hug they didn't show emotion and you should have seen the difference in even in my kids my kids started hugging and kissing him and we all started saying i love you when we when we left or when we came to greet him and i'm so glad i did that because i grew up without that without those Feelings and ever seeing him have any emotion. And he was a loving person. But we finally, it's like we gave him permission to do that. And me and, having, and hugging
0: is such another natural mm-hmm. human thing. Human yeah. touch is like, that's like such a basic.
2: I think that's what I found out with, you know, expressing um, creativity. There's a woman named Anne Morrow Lindbergh. She wrote A Gift from the Sea. I don't know if you've heard of that, but she says that I believe true identity is found in creative activity springing from within. So a creative activity can be anything like bird watching, tennis, quilting, cooking, painting, writing. And so that's what I think I started doing when I said, I'm going to paint. I'm not, I'm no good artist. I'm just going to take paint and start. Yeah, You're painting. not
0: going to paint to be an artist. You're going to no. paint to be
2: creative.
0: Yes. To, to allow the creativity to spring from within, forth
2: from within. Yes. And once I started doing that in three, I did three years of just painting furniture and painting Um, canvases and I was just I just poured myself into painting things and it released so much stuff and I finally had I think I found me I finally had me I had okay so we, we have
0: a little bit of time left tell me what that happened how walk us through that
2: well I had I had things to show that were just me, from me, by me. And I had a little shop downtown and I sold my furniture, um, old furniture that I repainted. And people were asking me for help and um, how to do it. And for the first time, that was my craft and my identity and nobody else's. It wasn't what my parents had told me to be. It wasn't my job, my career. It wasn't, it was so much fun. I mean, I can't even tell you. I still have a little booth in another market right now, but yeah, so for three years, I just painted and painted and crafted and read books. And it was just the best healing journey. It really was a healing journey.
0: Well, and it's a coming home journey to yourself.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I don't I don't want to say this in the wrong way. but sometimes we don't like take those journeys unless something pushes us into mm-hmm. them. I and agree. and we and we like might miss not that we wanted any of that stuff to ever no. happen but it just does seem like this is sort of the flow of life and in buddhism they say mm-hmm. life's a, a thousand joys and a thousand sorrows yeah and it's 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 the going through both that that where we actually end up discovering who we who we can actually become who we want to become Mm
2: -hmm. what brings us
0: joy what's like you said earlier you know you find out what's really important and that the small stuff just isn't like worth the time of day and also it it provides a compare and contrast yeah because it's really easy to know what we don't like But sometimes it's hard to figure out what we do like. But when there's so but through the having it in our face, what we don't like, we
2: sort of find what we do like. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? It does. And really, I love that, too, because I was doing that. I was able to say. I have to let go of this other stuff like this is just not doesn't matter anymore. And I got to the point at at work, I worked five years after Ben died. And I got to the point at work and I said to my husband, I cannot do this anymore. I'm being traumatized at work because I worked in child welfare. So I was working with addicts and children and crying for the wrong reasons. Like it wasn't healing. And I just got to the point and I said, I can't do this anymore. Do I have to do it? And I asked both my doctors, you know, do you think this is good for me? And they said, no, why do you have to? And so I retired early and I actually qualified for some social security early because I don't have to keep doing it. So why am I why am I adding suffering on top of suffering when I don't have to? So I didn't and I stopped and oh, it was so good because I did feel like I was taking back that control of who I needed to be. Maybe I didn't want to be that person yet, but I needed to, I needed to find that person. Because that was hard. I was my career was important to me, yep. but I just wasn't the same anymore. wasn't I wasn't able to.
0: Well, you and, couldn't give it the same way, and it was probably vicariously traumatizing you
2: more yes. than
0: more than the normal vicarious traumatization in that yep. that kind of work.
2: Definitely, because
0: that kind of work is traumatizing regardless
2: oh, to yeah, the to the definitely.
0: workers and then um and then on top of you know you already had like Ugh. more more than your fair share of trauma
2: yeah and well, i listen yeah. oh go ahead no i just think about how many women do that we just think we have to keep going and going and being you know xyz to everybody and uh, we don't we don't have to right
1: and and good good for you for for being able to see that have your doctor's
0: support
1: mm-hmm.
0: your husband's support and
1: then be be able to you know at a point where you could step away yeah that was that was a big relief <sighs> Well, listen, let's get a little, a a
0: nutshell, a snapshot of identity, forced identity transition. So like, who were you? What was your identity? Who were
1: you before Ben died by suicide? Who were you at the depths of your despair? and who
0: are you now after these different things that you've done to to heal and move forward is move forward the right word i think it is i think it is like i know move on is not the right word i know i and get over it is
2: definitely not the right <laughs> word and you know i didn't i know a lot of people get offended by things I don't I'm not really that way I think because we haven't been taught what to say really
0: no so no we don't and that's another reason that we don't talk about these things yes. is because we
2: actually don't really know what to say at all no and we're not it believe it or not and when I was in college I, I was a TA for a um, professor who taught death dying and grief can you believe it Like my life has just come full circle. And I loved that class. And, you know, maybe that's why I'm not offended because I had a class and I got to teach a group of, I was an older student. I was in my thirties when I went back to college and I got to teach a class of, you know, 18 to 20 year olds about death and dying. And it was so good. We even did a little tour through the crematorium and we you know i remember one gal said this is so good for me cuz my dad died last year and i said oh my gosh you should have told me like i didn't know and so i think back to those days when death was so scary you know it was scary for me so i think the person i was was i was really a focused mom. I was a single mom for a long time and I wanted to go to college. So after my kids were old enough, then I went back to college to finish and I was divorced. So that was hard. So I was just really a motivated mom and a motivated student. And then I got a good job and I was, you know, doing my my career stuff, and then, you know, doing what everybody wanted to do. I bought a house. I bought a good car. My kids, I mean, my oldest son didn't have a lot of contact with his dad, but I thought we were doing well. And then, um, right before I met Larry, I lost a job. so i was I was dealing with some depression then and Ben was about 12 or 13, I believe, when I met Larry, and so then we were focused on, you know, a new marriage, a new, new goals, same, same goals, fix up the house, you know, keep going, get better jobs, which we did, and get Ben through middle school and high school, and yeah, it was just typical stuff. We wanted to move closer to my parents. So we did that. And, you know, they were aging. And then I think that that person who saw all this stuff happening, you know, everything stopped. I remember thinking time has no meaning anymore. As soon as my dad died and Then Ben died. It feels like they just died at the same time because that year in between was just all I was trying to do was breathe. I was so sick. You know, I was just, I don't, I remember trying to keep my mom healthy and to stay alive. That's what it felt like. So it was just survival mode, I guess. And I just feel like time just stopped. Everything was just survival. And then my friend told me the best analogy. She said, you're going to feel like you're walking through mud for about a year and you just take it one day at a time. And that's what Larry always says. My husband, he says one day at a time. And so all that past, you know, stuff that I'd worked so hard for it really didn't even matter anymore. It got me to where I was. I'm a survivor. I'm not, I didn't feel like a victim. I'm just a survivor. And then one step at a time, I made it to, let's see, I was 52. Now I'm 62. And now I actually like myself. I tell people that now and they're like, what, you didn't like yourself? And I said, no, I don't think I did. Because everything was, I wish I would have done this or if only I could have done that. But now, you know, I can say I was a good mom. I was, I did the best that I could. And the memories, now, and it probably happens about the 10th year, I would assume the memories I have now are good ones. So if people can hold on, you know, to that, the grief and the mourning is a good process and we cry through it, right? We have to cry. The memories are good. And you know what? He's not suffering anymore. And he was, he was in pain. And that's not something that we can understand. So I couldn't have changed that.
0: Yeah, everybody has their life trajectory and nobody, you know, even ourselves, it's hard to figure out our own life trajectory, much less understand somebody else's. Mm -mm. Well, what, um, so who
2: are you and what do you do? How can people (laughs) find you online? Well, I think that picture you showed me at the beginning, I do too many things. But (laughs) but the one thing that I love, I love doing is um, I just love creating things. So I started our, we started a ministry years ago. Oh, it's probably six, seven years old now. And it is called Recovery Road Ministry and it's very small we don't have a building we have a truck and we raise money and clothing donations for the homeless in our city and it just it just feeds itself like it it's just so magical it's like when you build it they will come well right. that's what happened with this so when Lindsay, Lindsay died in 2010, and she was 25, and she died from the effects of alcohol abuse.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, we just said, we've got to feed people. So that's kind of how we started. So in our other town, we would have meals. And now Larry feeds people um, downtown on Tuesdays with another group. So we supply food for that and we have a Facebook page, and then he also carries around clothing in his truck, and then we make goodie bags of hygiene kits and um, all sorts of stuff in there, snacks, stuff like that, and we hand those out. So we have a big homeless population, and that's where all The proceeds of things that I sell go to that ministry. So that is on Facebook as Recovery Road Ministries Loveland. Our town is Loveland. Um, And then my part of the ministry is called Morning Heart Art. And I have a website called morningheartart.com. And I'm, I fired Shopify. So I'm getting a new marketplace on there because. Shopify wasn't working well for me. So right now it's kind of out of space. And then I make all sorts of things. Like I make jewelry, I sell two products that I'll have on there to direct sales companies. And then I still paint furniture and decor items that I sell. And then that's where my podcast will be once I separate it from the letters to my granddaughter that I write but so I'm working on that wow
0: Uh, all service-based and all built from your experiences of
2: misfortune I guess is well it's an honor we honor our kids that way and then Um, share their stories too so they're on there and they live on they were good kids they were beautiful kids huh Roo Roo yeah I think it's I think it's really the work that keeps him going too because his parents never thought he would live past 30 and um now he's 66 and has 20 years of recovery so it's pretty amazing Pretty amazing.
0: Yeah. The human capacity for change Mm -hmm. and mastering change, which of course my book is title of my book is just, it's remarkable. Mm -hmm. Just our, our, the human intellect and the capacity for compassion. Mm. When you put those two together, we can move mountains.
2: And we think, I used to think, well, you can't teach compassion, but your heart can feel the change. Your heart can learn it. Yeah. Sure. Well, listen, can. do you
1: have a couple of takeaways?
2: Mm. Well, the of course that I always think about other women who, you know, who suffer for all sorts of reasons and I always still want to say we cannot be afraid to ask for help because mm-hmm. um men and women because that was my biggest mistake was I didn't ask for help in the beginning and I think it's because the caregivers are so used to giving care that they think it's a sign of weakness when they ask for help or need help. And that is totally not true. Asking for help is a sign of strength because you're using your resources. So please ask for help. And then mental wellness. Let's think about mental wellness. I used to tell my dad, my dad would say, oh, Benjamin's gonna be okay, he is the strong one which was kind of true. We used to worry more about Ricky being, you know, not weak, but I did, I do say Ben was the strong one. It was, Ricky was more sensitive, maybe more vulnerable. Yes, that's probably it. More vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And if you've read Brene Brown's books, you know, that vulnerability is important and it's a good thing. So yeah. So we can't predict, like you were saying, we can't predict what their trajectory in life is going to be. So, my the boy I said was the strongest is the boy who needed the most help. But the boy that's not speaking to me and feels shame and guilt, you know, he's the one who needs the help right now. And if we can't give it to him, we have to make sure that there are resources in our communities for these men to to feel that they can ask or to feel supported. We have a brain. To
0: normalize
2: receiving and reaching out for help. Yes. And that's just part of what we should be receiving. Our mental health is just as important as our physical health. Duh. Mm -hmm. I think it's more important. Look how important our brains are.
0: Well, with our mental health, then we can make good decisions over our physical health.
2: Exactly. So
0: it's, it's it's if you don't have, I think the worst tragedy is when a person learn, loses capacity over their,
2: their thinking. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I still, I get so angry that we spend, you know, millions of dollars on Viagra to develop one pill, and we can't solve some of these other issues with our brain health, you know, drug companies, but that's a whole nother story, so.
0: <laughs> right, because it, to me, a, a, a huge part of it is prevention, and that comes down to family dynamics, it does. And, and no pill is going to fix family dynamics. So the individual therapy takes time and people have to want to go to it and they have to be able to raise their hand and say, I will, ch- I'm willing to change. I'm willing to not be in control. I'm willing to say that, you know, is it, and so it's, it's so messy, so complicated, but that's so another
2: story. And so many systems. I mean, so if you know a person or a friend or a family member, I mean... Let's help each other. It's like the old saying, check on your neighbor in this heat wave. Why do we have to tell people to check on their neighbor? We should be doing that automatically. You know, it's just, gets so let's check on each other. Yeah. Okay,
0: Christina, well, thank you so much. This is such powerful information and hearing about your story but what what did you, you. what did you love about telling it? Or did you get any insight in, in talking about this very Uh, difficult?
2: I I kind of love that. um, Well, first of all, I love that someone wants to hear it. (laughs) So that's so nice. Thank you. (laughs) I like telling it from this stage in my, in my life. I haven't told I don't think I've talked about it, oh, in a few years to this extent, because it's usually in a support group or writing, you know, writing it down. So I think it's kind of fun to hear, you know, hear myself what comes to my mind or just to say his name. Every mom wants wants to hear their child's name still even when they're not here so i appreciate you listening and asking questions and saying his name and you're still ben's mom you know you are still a mom yeah i'm still his mom i made a mug once that says ben's mom forever on it yeah yeah and i have i have lots of tattoos that have all sorts of stuff about him on it. <laughs> all right, Christina.
0: Well, thank you so much, so much for sharing this super,
2: super hard story.
0: Oh, thank you,
2: Julie. Thanks for, thanks for continuing to ask.
0: Yeah, just for the audience. I I met Christina about a year and a half, almost two years ago. Wow. And have been wanting her to tell the story for the podcast. And she just, you know, a lot of, you know, things happen and you're just not able to talk about it. And then I guess I caught you at a good
2: time. You did. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you for your work that you're doing. And we will have maybe links to that in the show notes. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Hey there. The value that you got from this today, take it into your heart. Add value to it in your own life by putting it into practice and growing it to be part of your life, your daily habits, the takeaways that you got from this. Words and thoughts only take us so far. It's implementing on those words and thoughts that will change your life. Ideas are just ideas. Taking action on ideas is where growth happens. And freedom emerges from growth. Freedom from our past invisible binding. We're here to grow and release ourselves from our past constraints. With awareness, intention, and through taking action on new choices, we evolve. In this process, we exalt our pain and suffering into wisdom that empowers us. We all have the ability to transform and become that person we yearn to be. If today's episode added value to your life, please share it with others. And make sure to subscribe to Bold Becoming Identity Retooled. And if you might, take a minute right now and leave a review so that others can find out about this podcast. If you'd like to contact me for one-on-one coaching or to get on the wait list for my Tough Stories workshop, send me an email and we'll be in touch. Be sure to check out our free Facebook group of Bold Becomers, the links in the show notes.